Thank you so very much for that, and you may be seated this morning. What a great blessing, what a wonderful treat uh, that is today as we worship together. I want to invite you to take your Bible today and join me in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts today. Acts chapter number four, and I'm going to speak to you um, about what the praise team just sang, and that is the name of Jesus this morning. The name of Jesus is the title of the sermon. Acts chapter number 4, and once we begin reading the text, you will note that it really picks up in the middle of a story. Uh, it's kind of an unfortunate chapter break, and we all know that chapter divisions were not originally part of the Bible. It was added by our translators to help make the Bible more manageable. Uh, so when I say open to Acts chapter 4, you can find chapter 4. So this is kind of an unfortunate chapter division that breaks uh, a part of a story that started to unfold in chapter 3. So you have to go back to chapter 3, look at the context, and then that leads us into chapter 4. And that's what we're going to do this morning. But follow with me in verse number 1 of chapter 4. The Bible says... <clears throat> And as they spake unto the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now evening. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about five thousand. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes, and Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, the Alexan and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked them, By what power or what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said to them, You rulers of people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to this helpless or impotent man, by what means he is made whole? Be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which is become the head of the corner." Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So may God add his blessings to the reading of his word this morning as we simply look at the name of Jesus. And as we make our way through chapters 3 and 4 this morning, you may want to underline or circle how many times you see a reference to the name of of Jesus. There are many titles of our Savior in the Scripture. He is known as the true vine. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the light of the world. But Jesus is his birth name. The Bible says that Mary brought forth her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And in the book of Matthew, the Scripture tells us that she called his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So today, we're going to look at this name. It is a name that the Scripture says is a name above every name. Now let that sink in for a while, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Now think about how powerful that is. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So today we're going to look at the name of Jesus. So what exactly is taking place in chapter number 4? I said to you that it's kind of an unfortunate chapter break 
between chapters 3 and 4 because the story begins to unfold for us in the third chapter. And uh, in order to understand chapter 4, it's necessary to go back and scan through some of the verses in chapter 3, and that's what we're going to do here momentarily. But just to set the context, the time frame is somewhere around about seven weeks or so after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. About seven weeks uh, since Peter denied Christ, since Judas betrayed Christ, since Jesus was nailed on the cross, and then, then just a couple of months later, in fact, the Bible says that it was 50 days later that uh, after Jesus had resurrected that he ascended back to God the Father and the New Testament church was born in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. So when you get to chapters 3 and 4, Christianity is still in its infancy. Only a couple of months old. But in chapter number 3, you read the story of Peter and John as they go to the temple to to worship. And as they go to the temple, uh, in a dramatic turn of events, they are met with a crippled man. The Bible says that this man had been crippled the entirety of his life. He had never walked before. He had never stood to his feet as far as we know. He was born in this crippled condition and lived that way the entirety of his life. Uh, Peter and John watch this man as his friends carry him into the temple. This crippled man look at these two the disciples and they, he expects them to give him some sort of a, a money to help the poor, some kind of a contribution that would help him um, monetarily. And as he reaches out to ask for alms, Peter says to him these words. In verse number 6 of chapter 3 he said, Silver and gold have I none. But such as I have, give I to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he takes this crippled man by the hand. Again, a man who had never stood to his feet before as far as we know. He takes him by his hand and not only does this man stand, not only is this man able to walk supernaturally, but the scripture tells us that he begins to run and leap and praise God for the healing. Well, as you can imagine, all of this drew a large crowd. Everybody was excited to see what happened here. And Peter, he had to be a Baptist preacher because anytime there's a crowd, he's ready to preach. And this drew a large crowd. So Peter is going to use it as an opportunity to preach. And that's what he does. And I'm telling you, he preaches a sermon that the ears of few men would ever hear. It starts back in chapter 3, verse 12. And it is interrupted momentarily in chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. And then it kind of picks back up, and then the sermon is concluded in chapter 4, verse 12. And it just kind of builds and builds and builds to a great crescendo in Acts chapter 4, verse number 12, with one of my favorite verses as he declares that there is no way a person could ever be saved or made right with God apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ. So, in this sermon, Peter addresses the healing of this crippled man. And he says the reason the man was healed was through the resurrection, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that if Jesus were dead, he couldn't do a thing for us. If he were dead today, he could not do a thing for us. But aren't you glad that our Savior is not dead today? Amen? He is very, very, very much alive. So Peter goes back to preach about this man whom Christ 
in his resurrected power brings healing. You pick up the story in chapter 3, verse 14. Follow with me. So as Peter preaches this sermon, again, how many weeks removed from the crucifixion? About seven weeks. Some of the people in attendance that day were the same people who were guilty of crucifying Jesus just two months earlier. Think about that now. In fact, there's great debate over who was ultimately responsible for the death of Jesus. Is it the Jews? Is it the Roman government? And the answer to that is both is yes. But I want you to know even more than that, you and I are responsible for the death of Jesus because it is our sins that nailed him to the cross of Calvary, right? We are all guilty of that. But this group on this particular day that Peter preaches this message Many of them are the same ones that watched the lifeless body of Jesus be taken, taken down from the cross and wrapped in a, in a tomb, his body wrapped and placed in a tomb. So now here we are two months later, Peter's preaching this message, and look what he says in verse 12. He says to this very crowd, he says, you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted to you. Of course, a reference, if you'll remember, during Jesus' trial when Pilate paraded Jesus out in front of the angry mob, and then he had Barabbas on one side and Jesus on the other side, and in order to show what a, what a, what a, what a, what a great benevolent man that he was, he said, I'll release one of these two men to you. And the crowd that day said, free Barabbas, but crucify Jesus. And they said, let his blood be upon our hands and upon the hands of our children. So Simon Peter makes reference to that. You desired a murderer to be granted to you, verse 15. Look at this. And you killed the prince of life whom God had raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Some translations render that the author of life. Imagine that scene if you were there that day. And Simon Peter point his finger in your direction and said, you have killed the author of life, God's only begotten Son. The Bible says in Jesus that in him was life, and life was the light of men. And on that day, Simon Peter says, you are guilty of killing the author of life. You rejected him. You treated him brutally, led him to a hill called Calvary, and there, outside the city gates of Jerusalem, crucified the author of life, and you killed him. But Peter would go on to say, it was all part of the divine plan of God, who so loved this wicked world that he willingly gave his son to pay a debt that you and I could never pay. That he willingly gave his son to absorb the full wrath of the righteousness of God, the judgment of God, and to take every sin of every human being on his own shoulders and nail it to the cross, the cross of Calvary. Peter would say that it was all part of the divine plan of God to let that transpire. And then on the third day, in power and great glory, he would raise Jesus back to life again to redeem the world. And then if you drop down to verse number 22, he gives us a quote from Deuteronomy 18. And again, in this sermon, he says in verse 22, For Moses truly said to the fathers, again, 18, 15, 
from the book of Deuteronomy. A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up to you of your brethren like to me. Him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he shall say to you. In other words, this is a prophet unlike anybody before him or anybody since him. And through this prophet, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. In fact, he says that in verse number 25. You are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, say unto Abraham. And in your seed shall all of the kindred of the earth be blessed. It is a message of conviction, a message of passion. They had just killed the prince of glory, the author of life, God's own son. But Peter would say, through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. Now it is right here that Simon Peter's message is interrupted. It's interrupted because he's arrested. And that's where you pick up the story in chapter 4. Go to chapter 4, look in verse 1. As they spake to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. And being grieved that they taught the people, now notice what they were preaching, and preached through Jesus, the resurrection from the dead, they laid hands on them, put them in hold until the next day, for it was now evening. In other words, these religious leaders came, and they roughly handled Peter and John. They put them in stocks. They held them in custody, not because they were preaching the overthrow of the Roman Empire. That's not the topic of their message that day. They were not preaching about the ills of slavery. And during first century uh, Rome, about one uh, out of every two people, about every other person was a slave in the Roman Empire. Millions of people trapped in the bondage of slavery. But that's not what Peter and John were preaching. And that's not what the religious leaders were most offended by. What they were most offended by was the truth that Peter and John were preaching that through the death of Christ... And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that death has been defeated, that everyone who places their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ can be saved and be assured of an, et of an eternal home in heaven. Now, can you imagine the religious leaders being upset about a message like that? But yet they were upset by that. They were offended by that. that. How dare you claim that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead? So before Peter could even finish this message, they throw him in jail. But the Bible says, if you will look, look at the results of this message in verse 4, or part of the results. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. Now anytime the gospel is preached, a person has to decide, do I believe this or do I reject this? There may even be somebody here under the sound of my voice this morning, and as I'm preaching, you're faced with that decision. Do you believe that Jesus came into the world and died on the cross for you? And do you believe that Jesus rose again from the grave? If you believe that with your heart and you ask Christ to transform your life and to save you, God will save you and guarantees you an eternal home in glory. But if you reject that, there is not a plan B. There is not an alternative to get to heaven. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, how can we taste of the goodness of God and then turn back and then let there be a remedy for it? He says there's no remedy for it. There's no plan B. So everybody has to make that decision. Do I accept the truth claims of the gospel? 
And do I let the fact that this carpenter's son who lived 2,000 years ago and wore sandals and rode a donkey, that I believe he is the Savior of the world? I want you to know I, I, I have hung my entire hope for eternity on the truth that Jesus is who he says he is. And I believe with all that I have and all that I am that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me and that he rose again the third day. And one of these days, I'm going to see him face to face. Amen? And so are you. And I'm going to put my hand in his hand. I'm going to say thank you. And for a thousand years, praise his name because of what he's done for me. But everybody has to make that decision. And on that day that Simon Peter preached, the Bible says some 5,000 people came to faith in Jesus Christ. Some 5,000. Now you think about that. Those who were under the sound of his voice, and they heard those truth claims, and they believed in the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, just a couple of chapters earlier, back in chapter number 2, that on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached, and some 3,000 souls were saved, were swept in to the kingdom of God. And they understood that this man from Galilee was not just another itinerant preacher, not just another prophet, not just a good man, but here was the very son of the living God. God in the flesh. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus revealed his identity to Peter and James and John and just briefly let them see the glory that was housed in this human flesh of his. And Peter said, he was so blown away, he said, let's just build a temple and stay right here. That's what he wanted to do. And these people that day listened and responded positively to the fact that Jesus indeed did conquer death for all of humanity. Do you know death invades the ranks of every person. Death is no respecter of persons. Sometimes death knocks on the door of an older person and they have to answer that door. Sometimes death knocks on the door of a young person and they've got to answer that door. Death comes to the rich and death comes to the poor. Death comes to those who are powerful and those who have little influence. Death is no respecter of persons. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. And I know one day I'm going to die. I know that. I know that you and I, we're not part of the living. We're part of the dying, are we not? The living is on the other side. We're part of the dying. And every day we get a little older, and every day we take another step toward death. Doesn't that just bless your heart and encourage you this morning? But we're all getting older, and we're all getting closer to death. But the good news is, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And what great news that is in a world in which we find ourselves today. I know 2020 has been a difficult year for us, hasn't it? It's been a difficult year for the whole world. I mean, it's been a difficult year for our country, been a difficult year for um, us as individuals. I said in the, in the uh, service before this one today that I remember back in, around the end of February, I believe it was, that we were having a staff meeting here at our church, and I remember saying to our staff, talking about this pandemic and, and, and how we're hearing more and more about it in the news, 
And I said, it may get worse, and we may have to work from home for a while. And if we do, we'll just try to do the best that we can and stay in touch and still minister as best we can in our church. Who would have ever thought? And I think I remember saying, maybe in a two or three weeks, it'll be behind us and we'll all be back to normal. Who would have ever thought, here we are, 10 months later, and we're still social distancing, still wearing masks, still not singing congregational music, not having the choir. How our lives have just been so interrupted. Listen, I haven't shook your hand in, in 10 months. So when this pandemic is over, I'm going to hug your neck, and I'm going to break your ribs, you know, if you're not careful. Who would have ever thought we're dealing with something like this for 10 months? And it seems to be picking up steam once again. Not just the pandemic in our nation, but we've been dealing with riots in the streets and racial uh, division in our land. We've got a contentious election that's going to take place in just a couple of days. And there's a lot of unrest even here in our country. I believe it is a record number of, of tropical storms all the way up through much of the Greek alphabet. Alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, eta, I think is where we're at now of tropical storms that have affected um, the United States or the, or the Caribbean. And it just seems as though the whole world is convulsing right now, doesn't it? And the whole world is just churning, and it leaves us a little bit dismayed. Well, you know, I don't know what's going to ultimately happen with COVID-19. I don't know what will ultimately happen with the, uh, the riots and race relations in our country. I don't know what's ultimately going to happen on Tuesday with our election. But listen, I want you to know this. I know with everything that's within me that there is a empty tomb outside the city gates of Israel that once housed the body of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And that tomb is empty today and that our Savior, Jesus Christ, is very much alive and because Jesus is alive, everything else is going to be all right. I don't know what it's going to look like I don't know what it's going to be like. I don't know how it's going to unfold. But aren't you glad he's alive today? Aren't you glad he lives? And because he lives, everything else is ultimately going to be okay. It may not work out the way I want it to or the way I think it should, but it'll work out the way God wants it to and the way we let him work and move in our lives and in our country. So Simon Peter is preaching this sermon. 5,000 people say, yes, I believe it. Their lives are forever changed. Go to verse number 5 and look at this. It came to pass on the morrow. Remember I told you that this sermon was interrupted for a little while? That the rulers and the elders and the scribes, that's all the religious uh, leaders, and Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and as many as were of the relatives or the kindred of the high priest, they were all gathered together in Jerusalem. Now remember this group, if you will. Annas was the honorary high priest. Caiaphas was the acting high priest. Now you remember when Jesus died on the cross, you remember the Bible says that the temple veil was torn in half. So the high priest who was supposed to go in behind the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice on the mercy seat every year on the Day of Atonement, now things were radically different for Caiaphas. And in fact the Jewish people even tried to sew the curtain back together, if you remember that. But, but Annas was the honorary high priest, father-in-law of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest who actually had Jesus chained in his basement the night before Jesus went to the cross. 
And along with Alexander and along with John and the others there, their family, their relatives, they really made up kind of the ruling class, the wealthy aristocrats of the temple, and they were in absolute control of the temple, of the authority, and of that city of Jerusalem. And they had vested their interest, their political agendas, their hopes in maintaining power as the ruling class. Well, when these disciples are now saying that this carpenter's son from Galilee who was so brutally treated seven weeks ago, he's not dead, he's alive, and proof of that is this lame man who is now walking and praising God. In fact, I believe the lame man was standing right there with Peter as exhibit A, and you say, look at this guy, what the power, the resurrected power of Jesus can do in his life, and what Peter was really saying is, we're all crippled. We're all crippled from the fall. But if you accept the payment on the cross, then you can be healed and you can live. And this ruling class, Caiaphas and Annas and Alexander, they said, we can't let that word get out. If we do, then, then, then our positions of influence is threatened. So look in verse number 7. And when they had set them in the midst, can't you see them just kind of um, turning the bright lights on, on Peter? When he had set them in their midst, they asked, by what power or what name have you done this? Have you done what? Remember chapter 3? Healed the crippled man. So they asked him, what power or what name have you done this? And this is just what Peter is waiting for. So he reaches his final point in this sermon. And I'm telling you, it really builds and builds and builds. Look at this in verse number 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, that's the kind of preacher I want to be. And that's the kind of Christian I want to be. And that's the kind of Christian I want all of us to be. Amen, church? Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to this helpless or this impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known to you all and to all the people of Israel. Now look at this. That by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. That's what a mate, what's made a, ma a difference in this crippled man's life is the truth claims of the gospel. That yes, Jesus came. Yes, he died. Yes, God raised him from the dead. And if we place our faith and our trust in the finished work of Christ, we can be healed. Isn't this an incredible transformation in Peter's life? Because just, just two months earlier, he's standing by the devil's fire, warming his hands when a maiden comes to him and says, I know you, you you're one of Jesus' men. And Peter swore that he didn't know him. Three different times he denied that he even knew who Jesus was. But now here he is Two months, less than two months from the resurrection, and he is so changed that he points right to the religious leaders and to the ruling class in Israel, and he says to them, you have crucified the author of life. You have crucified the prince of glory. But God raised him back again, and that's why this crippled man is healed. What a contrast. You see, if Jesus were dead, he couldn't have done anything with this crippled man. And if Jesus were dead today, he could do nothing for me, and he could do nothing for you. But I'm glad to say he's not dead. 
he's very much alive. Haddon Robinson told the story a number of years ago of a man who had written a book in the latter part of the 19th century called When It Was Dark. And in this book, this author imagined a group of atheistic archaeologists who had found the remains of Jesus in a Syrian crypt. And the author imagined what would happen if such a story caught on and people began to believe it. And he suggested that Christians would lose their faith, that Christian churches would close their doors, that Christian missionaries would be summoned from the mission field. And he predicted that within a half a century the Western world would be plunged into chaos and defeat and despair. And Dr. Robinson goes on to admit that although the novel was not a very good novel, he says the author does point out, however, that he understood the heartbeat of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and he said, If Jesus is not risen from the grave, then is our preaching in vain. He says, if Jesus is not risen from the grave, every missionary we've ever sent around the world, all of that was in vain. The buildings that we've built to worship God and to bring glory to God, all of that is in vain. Every monetary donation we've ever made for the cause of Christ, if Jesus did not rise from the grave, all of that is in vain. And then he says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are still in our sins. Meaning we have no hope. So certainly the foundation of Christianity rests upon the fact that Jesus is alive. And Peter hammers that home. Look in verse number 11. This, talking about Jesus, is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. It is a quote from Psalm 118. The stone which the builders refused has become the head of the corner. It is a reference to the building of Solomon's temple. In fact, let me, uh, let me invite you uh, to take your Bible, put your thumb there uh, in Acts chapter 4, but I want you to turn to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings chapter 6 for just a moment this morning, and I want us to look briefly at this account of the building of Solomon's temple. 1 Kings chapter 6, now it's just right in the front, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings, all right? Chapter 6, and the topic is the construction of Solomon's temple. Look in verse number 1. 1st Kings, chapter 6, verse 1. It came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziph, that's April and May in our Gregorian calendar, just for the time frame, which is the second month that he, Solomon, began to build the house of the Lord. And now in verse 2, and the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, he describes it. Verse 2, he describes the length and the breadth and the height of the temple. Verse number 3, he goes into greater detail uh, explaining its dimensions. Verse number 4, he talks about the windows. Verse number 5, he talks again about more specifics uh, inside the temple of God. Uh, verse 5 and verse number 6. But then move down to verse number 7, if you will. 
and the house, when it was in building, was built of stone made ready before it was brought thither, so that there was neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron heard in the house while it was in building. Now here's the scene. Don't you picture the building of Solomon's temple as a busy construction zone where you could hear the hammer on the chisel as they chiseled out those big stones that they would sit in place to form Solomon's temple. But that's not the case. The Bible says here, when Solomon's temple was built, is built, if you, if you see a picture of Jerusalem and you see that, that dome with that massive gold dome, um, the Mosque of Omar, the Dome of the Rock, uh, it's a Muslim um, shrine uh, today. But it sits on the place where Solomon's temple was built. And the Bible says that when Solomon's temple was being built, that it was not a word spoken or that it was silence. No, no sound of hammers, no sound of chisels and saws. Out of great respect for being on Mount Moriah where Abraham offered his son Isaac and God provided a ram called in the thicket is where Abraham, or excuse me, where Solomon is now building this temple and not even the sound of construction can be heard because beneath that dome of the rock today is carved out limestone. It's where Solomon kept his horses. It's the stables. And on our first trip to Israel, Tina and I were able to go down there and to visit some of that and to see some of that. But those limestone stones that would make up the temple mount and, the, and, and, and Solomon's temple proper were meticulously carved out with chisels, with chisels below surface. And then when the stonemasons asked for them, they could bring those stones up perfectly, I mean, there has to be some smart people, perfectly cut out with perfect dimensions that when they brought the stones up, that they would follow the blueprint perfectly and it would fit perfectly in place. So not even the sound of a chisel or a hammer could be heard on the construction site. But every stone made down below that massive place today was fashioned down there so it would fit on the Temple Mount, which tells us is a great illustration that sometimes God works on us down here and he chisels away the things down here so we'll fit when we get up there. Isn't that right? So nonetheless, they're working on these stones down below so they'll fit when they bring them to the Temple Mount. Well, there is a Jewish tradition, and I've shared this with you before. There's a Jewish tradition that says during the building of the temple that the men who were cutting the stones from beneath had cut out a large stone and they had sent it up to the masons above. And the masons, apparently they were not ready for it or couldn't find the exact place it was to fit at that particular time, so they moved it over to the side and it sat there for a while. And as it sat there, and they worked around it and worked around it, and finally someone thought it was in the way, and they just kind of slid it over to the side and slid it down an embankment, and it slid down the hill into the Kidron Valley. 
kind of hid itself away in some bushes and some bramble. And much time went past while they were continuing to build the, the, uh, the temple until some of the men who were building it finally needed what they called the cornerstone. And they sent word down to the quarry. We're ready for the cornerstone. Send it up. And the men in the quarry said, oh, we've already sent the cornerstone up a long time ago. And the men up top were like, well, we can't find it. We don't know where it is. Until finally someone remembered the stone that had been pushed off the side and had slidden down to the Kidron Valley. And they go down to the Kidron Valley. They, they hoist up that huge stone. They bring it back to the Temple Mount. And it is the cornerstone, perfectly fitted, that brings and, and fits all the other stones together. And as Peter preaches about that, he says the cornerstone, the cornerstone that holds all of life together is the Lord Jesus. And you had crucified the Prince of Glory and kind of pushed him off to the side, down to the Kidron Valley. But on Easter Sunday morning, God reached down and in resurrection power brought Jesus back to life and set him as the chief cornerstone that holds all of life and holds all of humanity together. This is the name that healed this crippled man. And as he hammers that at home, look what he says if you'll go back to Acts chapter 4, verse 12. He says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You mean, Simon Peter, there's no other name in the Jewish family where a person can be saved because this is contextualized to Jewish people. Of course not. Peter says there's no name given under heaven whereby a person could be saved. Well, you mean, Peter, there's no other name under heaven where a person can enter a 12-step program and they come out a better person and they can kind of save them their own selves. Peter says there is no name under heaven given among men whereby anybody can be saved outside the name of Jesus Christ. Meaning... You cannot be saved, or a person cannot be saved, apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ. I say, Pastor Darrell, that's awfully narrow-minded. Listen, may I say to you that only Jesus was perfect in his life. He died on the cross as the innocent Lamb of God, and God brought him back to life on the third day to give us eternal life. Only Jesus accomplished that. Joseph Smith never did that. Muhammad never did that. Buddha never did that. Mary Baker Eddy never did that. Or any other religious leader in the world. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Only the name of Jesus, only the name of Jesus, which leaves us with this. You cannot reject Christ and have any hope of heaven. You cannot look at any other religious leader for salvation. You cannot combine Christ with anything else in this world. And you cannot save yourself. The gospel reduced to one sentence Jesus came, he suffered, died, and rose again and is willing to come into the heart and life 
of anybody who will call on him as the cornerstone of salvation. That's why we sing, Jesus, your name is power, breath, living water, such a marvelous mystery. With all creation, I sing praise to the King of kings. You are my everything, and I will adore you. I don't know everybody's heart in this place, but there may be somebody here today that has never made that life-changing decision for Christ. And if you're here today and you're not saved, I want you to know God loves you, and he's made a way for you to be saved. And that's just to come and invite Jesus to come into your life. You say, Pastor, how do I do that? It's very simple. You just pray, and by faith, you say, God, I believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that he did what he said he did, and I invite him into my life. And then you repent, you turn from your sins, and the Bible says, whoever would call on the name of the Lord would be saved. So if you're here today and you're not saved, I'm going to challenge you. Would you be willing to step out of that pew right now and come and say, Pastor Darrell, I want to do what Peter said, and I want to have that chief cornerstone in my life. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, thank you for being the living, risen Savior. Thank you for coming to shed your innocent blood so that we could go free and that we could be made whole. Lord, I do ask that as we have a time of invitation and we make the public appeal the most important time of our services, as you spend time dealing with people's hearts today, God, if there's one here today that's lost, that they would come and say, Pastor Darrell, I want to be saved. I want to be a Christian. Maybe there are others today who want to unite with our church family or others who just want to come and pray. God, you take this invitation and use it for your glory, your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.